It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. For all of you out there who are Elvis fans, you are going to love this show. This is very different from what I usually do, but it is wellness-based. We are going to be talking about health, and it's why I agreed to do this story, but also because I think it's a very important message that we need to get out, and the author did it in such a beautiful way. New research sheds light on the story of Elvis's flawed DNA and chronic illnesses. For the first time, a research-backed explanation of why the world lost Elvis on August, 7th, August 16th of 1977 is offered. Today's special guest, historian and author, Sally Hodel, doesn't see Elvis as a cautionary tale of self-destruction. Instead, she sees a man who struggled every day to survive. First, Elvis struggled through extreme poverty. Then he struggled through extreme fame like no one had experienced before. Finally, he struggled with disease and disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. In her compelling, thought-provoking release, Elvis, Destined to Die Young, Hodel offers, a factual and, offers factual and scientific data, plus never-before-published information she gained by interviewing people who personally knew Elvis to dive deep into his struggles with multiple chronic health conditions. And Sally's going to tell us more. Um, let me bring her on. Okay. Good morning, Sally, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. You are so welcome. What an amazing book you wrote. Um, Okay, so when did your interest in Elvis Presley start? Well, I I always say that I'm lucky my childhood had a soundtrack because my dad would always play records on the weekend. And he was a big Frank Sinatra fan um, and would play Dean Martin and Jerry Lee Lewis, things like that. But he also had the Aloha album uh, from Elvis Presley. And that was my first exposure. So I've been a fan since I was a little kid. You know, and that, of course, is 1970s Elvis. I discovered 50s Elvis on my own, and I was really hooked after that. And, you know, by the time I was 10, um, buying cassette tapes back then and um, uh, reading the books as they came out. So just a lifelong fan. Um, And that's amazing. So many people are lifelong fans, but yours started really young. Uh, Okay. And what prompted you to write a book like this, to really dive into the history of his health? Sure. Well, I think, you know, for us lifelong fans and for those of us Elvis enthusiasts who read all the books, uh, we're always left with questions. And that's why we keep reading it. You know, there's been so many books written about Elvis and so many written by people who knew him and, and the fans will read one after another. And I think part of that is because of the contradiction in Elvis's story and then the unanswered questions. So for me, as a lifelong fan, you know, I was always kind of struck by why does Elvis die in a similar age and similar degenerative pattern of health as his mother, because his mother didn't have the stress of being Elvis. She didn't take the prescription medication Elvis took. So, you know, that was just one of those questions that was always there. Uh, I am a writer and journalist by training. I have a degree from Michigan State University. And um, it just got to the point in my life where I wanted to research and write about something I was passionate about. And uh, I had been reconnected with some of my books that I had as a kid. Uh, My parents still had them. And in one of the books, it talks about how Elvis's maternal grandparents were first cousins. And, you know, it's just kind of like a light bulb moment of what if that's why there's this young death in the family. And I decided to spend six months just kind of reading everything I could to see if there was enough, you know, basic, um, easily accessible information out there. And there was. uh, So at the end of that six months, I decided to really dive in and fully research it. And 
as a fan, as a journalist, just blown away by the way the dots connected and the way all of this made sense and the way this layer of Elvis's story really makes his entire life story make not only more sense, but it's even more uh, amazing when, you know, you talked in the beginning about how he's always seen as a story of self-destruction, and it really is a story of survival. And when you look at it through this lens of everything he had to overcome health-wise, it's really even more of an amazing story. It is an amazing story. And I think what people don't realize is you would think that someone like him had such a big ego, you know, and he was so self-centered. But he, you talk about him in the book as being just a regular guy, very nice, very kind, overly kind. Um, and he never really, he was that way as a child, and he never really lost that kind of personality, no matter how famous he became. Absolutely. He was a gentleman and he was his parents' son and they raised him to be like that. And, you know, Gladys, his mother was interviewed in the 1950s and she said, I am most proud that he has grown up to be respectful. And uh, that was, you know, it's, they certainly succeeded at, at that. And there are people on movie sets, you know, that say he knew everyone's name, you know, from the lowest on the ladder to the highest. And he was respectful to everyone. Uh, there's great stories about law enforcement who he had a great respect for. You know, he would know the names of the police officers in every town he went to. Uh, things like that. I think he just, he related to common people. I think that's why he has the Memphis Mafia and all those guys around him that had similar Southern roots as he did for the most part. Um, it's why he keeps his family around him. You know, at any given time, not only are a number of his relatives living at Graceland and his grandmother always lives there, I always say, you know, what other rock and roll star takes women home to meet grandma, but grandma lived at Graceland. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, he is always taking care of his family. And, you know, the other side of that, you know, when we talk about a health perspective, as you always do, um, it's part of what drives him is providing for his family and it drove him from a very young age to pull his family out of poverty and he hopes that maybe music is a way he can do that uh, but that continues to drive him because not only does he pull him out of poverty but then he has to keep them there so when his health is compromised and his health is failing he continues to tour even more because all of these people rely on him and I think average people can understand that too like how often is you know do you not feel good but you know you have to go to work you know you have to put food on the table and Elvis certainly felt like that too and not only that I mean he generated probably billions of dollars but he the people who were um, taking care of the money were not very mm -hmm. good with it and so it kept going through his hands like water I mean you know, he could absolutely, and, and Elvis wasn't very good. Elvis wasn't no. very good with it either, because he spent it like mad. Um, you know, he he was on the receiving end of so much generosity when he was dirt poor in Tupelo, and I think those lessons of poverty or of generosity stuck with him. So he gives away, you know, so much, and there's so many stories um, attached to that. Uh, he he just felt like, what's the point of making all that money if you can't share it? But unfortunately, there was some bad financial planning, you know, involved along that along those lines as well. Right. Your book takes us back to um, like the 1850s, very early, um, several generations uh, before Elvis was born, so that we can see what the pattern was, uh, where he came from, and where his parents came from, and. Um, when you talk about dirt poor, I mean, you mean dirt poor. These people, you know, they may have had a radish for dinner. I mean, they right. they were sharecropper. I mean, they um, worked as sharecroppers, um, mm -hmm. and they lived in the most despicable kind of places with, you know, open windows and no air and, and hot and cold and you know, and they all huddled together in one room, and this is where his family came from. And he was very, very poor as a child as well, um, which is why you said that, you know, it was his lifelong goal to pull his parents out of poverty because they could not seem to do it for themselves. There just was not that opportunity for them. So absolutely, and as you said yeah. with the with the early research, it's generation after generation, you know, that can't seem to pull themselves out of poverty. They let land ownership kind of go at inopportune moments, and all of that leads to Elvis being in, um, you know, public housing. And I always I write about how that defining moment of being uh, in a um, a rental, you know, they were renting a room in a boarding house and they had an interview with the public housing lady who would approve them or not approve them for an apartment. 
and uh, Elvis was 13. And I think, you know, he's so often, the relationship with his mother is always so romanticized and people are looking for answers there. But I think it's his relationship with poverty that gives us the answers because in that room on that day, you know, he decided he was going to do something and only he could turn the tide, the generational tide of poverty. So when he does, he really does compromise his health and, and a lot of things in order to keep them at that status. So where do you think um, the health issues began? Because I know there, and and you say that, you know, your interest was really sparked when you found out that there were first cousins that had married back in his, you mm-hmm. know, genetic, genetic past. And um, sure. so tell us, tell us about, you know, where this, the health issues really started as far as you know. Sure. Well, they're throughout the family tree and they are traceable. Um, so his maternal grandparents are first cousins, so his mother's parents. And we see so much young death and disease in Gladys, his mother, and her siblings. So Gladys dies at age 46, you know, heart and liver-related issues. Elvis dies at 42, serious heart issues. And uh, Gladys also has three brothers, so they'd be Elvis's uncles, who die, you know, at 46 and then 48, I think, and then early 50s. So by the time you get to Elvis, when you have, you know, four people in that previous generation dying of heart, liver, lung disease between 45 and 55, and you get to Elvis, it's just not a coincidence anymore, in my opinion. So we also see disease in his, in his grandmother. Um, she took to her bed in, I believe, 1905 and took to her bed, they said, with tuberculosis, yet she had several children, nine children from her bed, and, but was diseased, you know, for the next 30 years. And it just doesn't add up because tuberculosis was a highly contagious disease. They lived in a sharecropper's cabin. No one else caught it. No one else died from it. And then the life expectancy back then was probably five years at most, and she lived for 30 years. So when we see that Alpha was, when Elvis was a carrier for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a genetic disease that affects the liver and the lungs, uh, we can see that that's most likely what his grandmother had and then we think it it makes sense that it affected Gladys's liver uh, because again it can attack the liver or the lungs so once we can identify that in Elvis we know it had to come from somewhere and then we can look for evidence of it within the tree okay so um, so what is so so with this particular genetic disorder mm-hmm. um, does it take two so so tell us the the significance of the first cousins marrying Sure. So there's a number of things. You know, that's not the only ailment Elvis had, but we know that he was a carrier for it from his autopsy. So that one's a little easier to identify. Um, but when that, that gene pool doubles like that, you know, your chances of inheriting bad genes is also doubled. And for the girls, um, they have a less chance of inheriting it. So Gladys also has three sisters who live to old age. Yet Gladys dies at 46, and the three boys die very young too because when the boys, you know, they inherit an X from mom and a Y from dad, they only get one set of those genes on the X chromosome. But a girl gets an X from mom and an X from dad, so a bad gene on one X chromosome might be replaced by a good one from the other parent. Um, but, the, you know, your, your odds of that are... Again, it's just it's heightened with that first cousin marriage, um, assuming that both of those parents, you know, both of the first cousins had the alpha one, and then it gets doubled because they're both carriers or they're both inflicted. So um, Gladys is really, his mother is really the unlucky female in that family because, again, the risk was much higher for the boys than the girl. Then we see that play out in her tree. So, so, alpha, Elvis, so what else? Oh, I'm sorry. Keep, Go ahead, keep I'm sorry. going. No, no, I want, no, I want you to continue. I was just going to say that alpha-1 is an interesting disease. Um, it still, even today, goes undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, often as emphysema or um, COPD. And oftentimes, you know, because if it affects the liver, it can lead to cirrhosis. And this happened to my aunt, you know, through marriage. Um, she had cirrhosis of the liver, and they said, well, you must be a lifelong alcoholic, and she had never drank in her life. And then it turned out she had alpha-1. So you can see how back in Gladys's day or even before that, without the acknowledgement of this disorder, you were just automatically assumed to be an alcoholic, and that's partly what has happened to Gladys over all these years, too. Hmm. Um, So Elvis... You know, for most of his life, 
he was addicted to pills, but he wasn't taking them like a drug addict. He was taking them because, first of all, he thought they were benign. And second of all, um, he needed it because he had so many health issues. But when did all this really start for him? Yeah, so he starts taking uh, medication in the in the 50s, probably, you know, I would say late 56 and into 57, before he goes in the military, um, he starts with sleeping medication because he is a, long, a lifelong insomniac. And there are certain reasons, there's only a few reasons why insomnia is present usually in young children. And one of those is um, ADD. And I think Elvis was probably, probably had ADD. And of course, it wouldn't have been recognized as such back then. Uh, but, you know, his first girlfriend, and several other people uh, from the high school years and whatnot go on about how he was always fidgeting, always moving, you know, couldn't focus. So I, I think that was probably the case because then he also turns, he is, um, Gladys had been taking Dexedrine and then Elvis starts to take Dexedrine as well. And even today, Dexedrine is used as a treatment for, for ADD. So I, he, he took these things, you know, with the insomnia and the ADD and, and it worked. And and he finds a solution early on when he first starts to take this medication. And the thing we also have to look at this stuff through a historical lens. And in the 1950s, dexedrine was readily available. It was known as the housewife drug of the day. And it was prescribed for anything, you know, from depression to mood swings to weight loss to, you know, just you name it, it was prescribed. And it was really thought to have the same addiction level as caffeine. And it wasn't until the mid-1970s that they realized it was much more addictive and could become a serious problem. But Elvis does see, you know, part of the issue of, you know, connecting this cycle of poverty to his story is that when he does have access to health care and it's not until he becomes Elvis Presley and he's famous and has money, they would never have been able to afford health care prior to that of almost any kind. And he sees this access to health care as part of his, a part of his success. So he certainly sees his access to medication as part of his success. And then when he does use it to treat some of these smaller ailments and it works, you know, he kind of continues down that path. So dexedrine is a stimulant, but I guess if when taken by someone with ADD, it works in the opposite way. Yep. Like, okay, yes. all right. So that's that's why it worked for him. So that's pretty. Yeah, that, I think he that's found relief in that, you know, in the in the fidgeting. He found the relief in that, and then it also obviously helped him stay awake and and things like that because he's an insomniac. So um, again, the initial exposure to medication worked for some real ailments that he was struggling with. Okay. He had chronic tonsillitis from the time he was a child, which, you know, to me, I, thinking about him being a singer, that yeah. it's truly amazing that he pushed through that chronic tonsillitis that, that plagued him his whole life, uh, and he still was Absolutely. able to continue to sing. How did he do that? Well, you know, there was talk of taking them out a couple times, once when he was in the Army and once later on, and he was always afraid that it would affect his singing voice. Uh, but when they looked at his tonsils later on, they had never seen such, you know, Sonny West describes them as having, you know, holes in them and, and whatnot because he had battled such chronic infection with them time and time again. And that also, you know, leads us to the other uh, disease that we know he had, which was uh, hypogammaglobulinemia, and that's an immune system disorder. You know, Elvis's body did not make the necessary antibodies to properly fight infection. And I think we see that early on when he's battling um, tonsillitis as a little kid. And there's a couple stories, you know, one in particular where Vernon said his father that they might lose Elvis because his temperature was so high and they couldn't get it down. And the doctors, could, you know, they had called the doctor and they did everything they could with their country remedies and all that, and they could not get the fever down. Uh, but we see him battling infections throughout his life recurrent over and over and especially you know towards the last few years when he's touring so much it as soon as he starts touring that's even harder on his immune system and he ends up sick and he ends up with fever and you know for quite a while there it was thought of as oh Elvis is making this up to get more medication you know but he really was chronically ill and it's because his immune system didn't work properly and of course you know again think of it from a historical perspective because Today, we know how important vitamin D is to a properly working immune system without this issue that he had. And Elvis lived at night. Everybody knows that he was so famous that he would live at night so he could get around better, you know, without the crowds and all that. So you know he had vitamin D deficiency, and that was not a time when you supplemented. Hmm. Incredible. Now, yeah. Elvis, so something as simple as vitamin D today, you know, really greatly affected Elvis. Yeah, I mean... 
it's one of the first things I think doctors ask us now. It's so important that um, we, most of us take supplements, right? So I don't know if most people know that Elvis was a twin, but his Mm -hmm. um, twin died at birth, right? He was stillborn. Was he stillborn? Yes. Yes, he was. Okay. So Elvis was an only child. um, And, but I, you know, I think it's really interesting that he was a twin. It's just so, you know, so amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. And of course we'll never know, you know, they, they were born at home and, uh, the stillborn child was born first. And then because they were so poor, he was buried in a shoebox in an unmarked grave and we'll never know, you know, whether there were genetic complications there or not, or, or what might've caused that. But, um, we can certainly speculate. Right. Exactly. So, he he had such a um, illustrative career, and it's amazing to me because I know when I don't feel well, I don't want to do anything. And with all the things that he was dealing with, he just kept pushing forward. And I guess it was because of what you said initially that his lifelong goal was to take care of people, especially his parents. Absolutely. And I think the medication allows him, you know, he is self-medicating after a certain point and the medication does allow him to continue being Elvis Presley. And I know that's hard for people to understand when all you've ever heard, you know, for decades is the old rhetoric that he was abusing the medication, took too much and died. But even, even his death alone doesn't show evidence of a death, a drug induced death. It was a heart related incident. Um, But when we're told that over and over, it's hard to imagine something different. But I absolutely believe that in the session in the last two years, he could not have kept being Elvis Presley without the medication. I would compare it today to someone with Lyme disease who can't get out of bed and doesn't really know why, and it's hard to diagnose. Uh, because we know Elvis had this immune system disorder, like you said in the beginning, disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. And again, it's always written off as the end result of the prescription medication problem. But we also now see that there's evidence of at least five of them being present prior to fame, most likely since birth. So the medication couldn't have caused them. And um, it's just, it's a new perspective. It's a new way to look at this. And it really does make more sense. And, um, and again, I think he, there's no way he could have continued being Elvis Presley those last couple of years without it. And just from the inflammation alone, you know, when he talks about how his whole body hurts. Um, back then, again, people thought, well, he's just trying to get more medication. But he said it over and over again in confidence to people, and we have to believe him. But just knowing how his gut didn't work, and we know how important that is today, you know, many people believe that all cancer starts with an unhealthy gut. And, you know, when that gets unbalanced, everything gets unbalanced. And... Elvis had a severe, you know, digestive colon issue. He had a megacolon, and we know that constipation and all of that was a problem for him since birth. There's testimony to that, um, that, that Gladys had issues with him, you know, achieving a bowel movement from the time he was a toddler and a baby, and then there's evidence of that in high school. So lifelong problem for him, and just the inflammation all of that would have caused, um, you know, I can't imagine the arthritic pain and whatnot that he would have been dealing with. It's amazing. Yeah, when he um his when he died his spleen weighed three hundred and forty grams, whereas a normal spleen weighs seventy five grams. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and um I know his um his colon was huge. Huge and it just was not it, functioning. It was huge. It was not functioning, and that in itself could have killed him at any moment. You know, that could have become a toxic situation mm-hmm. that leaked and could have you know, killed him at any time. Um, and again, that one is always talked about because opiates and whatnot would slow down your digestive system and people believe that's what happened. And obviously it would not have helped someone who already had these issues. But even in 1971, when Elvis was doing the Vegas shows and there's, they're very active, you know, and very, you know, like the, he's, the karate moves he's kind of famous for, you know, uh, but Elvis, the way it is, is one of his famous concerts that was filmed and He's incredibly active, yet he writes what is known as the TCB oath, and it includes a lot of things. But at the end, it, you know, he asks for freedom from constipation. So even though he looks young and healthy and is so active and vibrant on stage, it is a major problem, so much so that he writes it down. And I think we all know what a stomachache feels like for a couple of days, but Elvis mm-hmm. dealt with this his entire life and then had to perform in the way that he performed. And again, it's one of the reasons he turns to the medication without question. 
you know, this conjures up the image. My son is a, um, a fifth year resident surgeon and um, he mm-hmm. sends us a picture of a colon that he took out of somebody. And it looks like a, like a huge boa constrictor. It's so oh big around. And so, I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard to believe that this could have been inside of somebody, but, you know, as you talk about this, I'm picturing that and, um, it's amazing that he could keep going on with his colon so, you know, inflamed and yeah. swollen, stretched out. And when out it's inflamed and, it's... and swollen and, it, and it, it gets enlarged like that, it doesn't function like it should. Um, you know, there, we believe he probably had Hirschsprung's disease, which is from birth, and it means that the end of the colon doesn't get wired with nerves like it should, so you have a hard time, you know, pushing out waste and whatnot. And uh, because we know it was a problem from the time he was born, you know, his um, – Gladys's cousin, who she spent a lot of time with, is on record saying that again they could. It was hard for baby and toddler Elvis to achieve a bowel movement. So for this mm-hmm. to be a lifelong problem that was only going to get worse, and you know, I will also say if he was born today, you know, I'm gluten free for a lot of reasons, but um, Elvis had allergic reaction to things as kid as a kid, and we know that because his dad would say his dad is on record saying Elvis had asthma real bad. He would get so itchy and he'd scratch up and down on a tree. Well, that's not really a symptom of asthma, but I bet he was having allergic reactions to the things he ate because we know he has this bad gut. And um, if he was born today, he'd be dairy free and gluten free, you know, pretty quickly, <laughs> and people would be trying to figure out what he's eating that's causing this, you know. But nobody, again, they were so poor they ate whatever they could back then. And, uh, of course, a high-fat diet often, you know, um, so things are cooked in butter, and when it's all you have to eat, you're gonna, you, know, you make it taste good. Um, so he, he encountered a lot of that as a child, and the colon problem from the very beginning, and I, it's so important to understand that. Because Elvis did die in the bathroom, you know, that's unfortunately a lot of Americans, that's all they know, the younger generation, that he took too many pills and died in the bathroom. And I think that's most unfortunate given his level of contribution to our society. Um, but I think that's also why the colon problem gets kind of extra exploited with him. Wow. You know, he did a lot of movies, and they were kind of fluff. <laughs> they weren't real, mm-hmm. real deep, deep you know, stories or whatever. And he really despised doing those movies. He really did not. But um, he was pushed by the Colonel, right? He, he, to keep doing these movies. And, you know, what was the point of that? Well, it's a two-sided thing. You know, again, this book, there are a few things that it's, that surprised me as a fan. And one of them was understanding his um, desire to be a provider, as we've talked about. But then I also found more of an understanding in his relationship with the colonel. Um, you know, I think they decide very very early on, because like you said before, Elvis didn't have great financial advisors. His dad was kind of in charge of a lot of that. And um, they they leaped, you know, so many, it, it would take generations to make the financial leap that that family made in one year. So they didn't really know what to do with all that money. And um, when they meet the colonel, I think Elvis decides, okay, I'm going to do the singing and you worry about the money. And that works, you know, because Elvis knows how to sing and he doesn't really want to be responsible for the kind of money that he was making very quickly once 1956 hits. And then when it comes to the movies and the colonel is making these deals, you know, for a million dollars a picture, it's hard for a poor kid to say no to a million dollars to do anything. So it wasn't just all the colonel. I mean, Elvis did get locked into these movie deals. He wanted better scripts. All of that is true. But he also, I think, from a provider standpoint, had a hard time saying no to a million dollars to make another movie. But um, And the other problem is that, you know, they were all profitable. So <laughs> and he wanted to sing less in movies. He wanted serious roles. And in those, in the few early ones, you know, they, they attempt that, and they didn't make as much money as the ones that had all the singing. So the fans wanted it. They were profitable. And that's, that was another reason why those movies continued. So it's kind of a three-pronged thing. You know, they were successful. They made money. The colonel locked them in. Elvis needed to make the money. And yes, he wanted to do something more serious and more dramatic. He just he never had the chance, unfortunately. But there's still there's a handful of really good movies out of them out of the thirty something, and you just have to look for them. And he desperately wanted privacy, so he bought a farm, and a mm-hmm. horse farm, and um, he that's really where he wanted to be. Um, he wanted to be out of the limelight. Not only that, but um, he wanted a wife, 
that was not in the limelight. He wanted, which is why he chose Priscilla, right? Yeah, I think he had some of those traditional, you know, ideas. He was raised in a small town, Great Depression values, uh, traditional American male. And, yeah, I think he had those ideas. He, he, he was in love with Anne Margaret at one point, but he was very clear about not wanting to marry someone who was in the industry. So that was a, a big part of it. Um, and, yes, with Circle G was a, was a horse ranch that he bought out in Mississippi, about, I think, maybe 20 minutes from Graceland, and he thought he could be able to go there for some respite, you know, to get away and, again, to reconnect with those roots of horseback riding and farming and, you know, all those things that he did when when growing up in Tupelo. And um, it, it didn't last long. First of all, the fans found him there, too, because <laughs> – because they did, he didn't go far enough away, I guess. And uh, the fans found him there, and and it became a really expensive, you know, piece of property to hold on to. So it was just another financial drain as well. Mm. Wow. And he took everybody with him, and he bought them all horses, right? Exactly. You know, that's the thing. It's like the whole Memphis Mafia had to go out there. Then he put 10 trailers or whatever on the property so everybody could live there. Then everybody had to have a truck, and everybody had to have a horse. So, you know, whenever Elvis did anything, he didn't do it small. He went all out. So. Wow. Mm. Wow. Um, so um, what else, uh, before we start talking about the death, um, what mm-hmm. other points are important to make about his life, you know, before we really get to the part about um, when he died? Yeah, well, um, well, in terms of, again, I think Elvis is the most, he's the biggest victim in our culture of sensationalism and romanticism. You know, everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows who he is by his first name and his image alone. And that's universal around the world. Yet, you know, as recognizable as Mickey Mouse and Coca-Cola, McDonald's, all those American things, um, yet he was a real person and he was a human being. And I think we've, he's gotten to this level in pop culture that he's rarely given that opportunity. So when we look at his flaws, you know, and we let in a, in a health sense and we look past sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, we let him be this historical figure and this cultural figure that he is, and then we look for understanding, you know, not just, oh, rock and roll star drugs and died, but when we look for understanding of, you know, the, first, the real journalistic question there is why does Elvis turn to the prescription medication in the first place? That's never been asked before this book. It's never been examined, and there's a real answer for that. So I think by kind of stripping away that sensationalism, stripping away that pop culture image of Elvis Presley and the jumpsuits and the sideburns and thinking about the man and understanding why he makes certain lifestyle choices, I think it's, it's beneficial for all of us. And like we said in the beginning, um, it's a much better story because it's a story of survival and not self-destruction. So I would just say before we get to his death, you know, his mother's death, understanding that came first. And that gives us a lot of answers to Elvis's death as well. Because again, when you talk about romanticism, it's always been told that Gladys, you know, Elvis is drafted. He goes into the army in 58 and the story is that Gladys, you know, just died of a broken heart because her only son was going to be going into the military, even though he had been gone touring, you know, <laughs> two years before that. And, of course, it's just a romanticized viewpoint. But the truth is that she had a cardiologist from 1955, which was not known until this book, that she had a cardiologist that early, which means, you know, from 43, 44, she would have been seeing a heart doctor, and that would have been unusual in 1956, just like it'd be unusual now for someone that young. So that is really an important aspect, too, that, you know, again, it connects us through a family tree and through um, it not being a coincidence once Elvis is struck with these things. It's amazing. Um, When he uh, met Priscilla, he met her in Germany when he was overseas uh, in the Army, Mm -hmm. and um, she was only 14 years old and he was what, 21 or something like that in his twenties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. You know, but you say in your book that in the South, you know, back at a certain time, this was not uncommon to marry very young women. It was not uncommon. And it's one of those things that kind of drives me crazy just from a historical standpoint, from a journalistic standpoint, when you have all these, you know, modern day keyboard warriors that want to call Elvis a pedophile or whatever else, because he, he likes young girls. And the truth is, I mean, the absolute truth is that girls were getting married at 14, 15, and 16 in the South 
in the 1950s still and in the 1960s. Um, without question, it happened. You know, uh, Dixie Locke was one of Elvis's first girlfriends, and she he wanted to marry her. I think she was 15, and she had promised her mom that she would finish high school. So that was one of the reasons they broke up. Uh, he was older than her as well. But, um, you know, her sister had dropped out and got married, and she promised her mom that she wouldn't. And if you start interviewing people who went to high school with Elvis, several of the females will say, well, I only knew him until, you know, sophomore year because then I dropped out and got married. Um, it was a very common thing to still get married that young back then. And I think what, you know, part of the reason for that is that women were not expected to go to college. They were not expected to have jobs. They were expected to graduate from high school. And most of the time, they would get married and have kids. So there wasn't really a reason to delay that. So and you Lisa were 18 Marie, and graduated from high school. Right. And Lisa Marie was a honeymoon baby, right? She was conceived on yes. their honeymoon? Right. Yes. So he, he wanted his wife. He wanted his family. He wanted a, you know, a, a normal kind of life. Um, was he in love with Priscilla? Because, if, you know, why was he dating Anne Margaret if he was in love with Priscilla? <laughs> well, because he was Elvis Presley. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, because uh, he was Elvis Presley. He could. Right. He could. Um, you know, it's it's kind of one of those contradictions in Elvis that is, that's really interesting. How does this guy who is very religious, you know, very... Um, just he wants a, a a wife who is a virgin and believes in that. He believes marriage is forever. Uh, he wants a traditional family, like you're saying. Um, yet he has these escapades, you know, that that prove otherwise. And I and that's part of the juxtaposition, you know, of of who he was. And and I think that internal conflict for him was also very difficult because when you if you read about like what Natalie Wood thought of him or Rita Morano uh, in the 1950s when he started dating these actresses, you know, they felt like he was very inexperienced and he didn't want to do anything but kiss and read the Bible. Um, <laughs> so I think El, you know Elvis changes as the country changes because by the 70s when he is you know. He's he's married in the late '60s, and then by and they're divorced. I think by in '73. Um, but that sexual revolution happens, right? And then Elvis is more comfortable with having girlfriends and all of that. And I, I don't think it was just Elvis; it was the country was also becoming more comfortable with all of that. So I think he evolves as the country does, going from 1950, where a lot of those things weren't acceptable, to 1970, you know, when it was. Is that what broke up his marriage with Priscilla? I believe it was the women, but she also, you know, had been seeing someone. Um, I think it's just the strain of that rock and roll lifestyle, being on the go so much. Um, you know, you, I think you said at the beginning that Elvis was not an egomaniac, and he wasn't. He was a good guy, but I think there is a side to being a famous person where ego, a certain level of ego is unavoidable, and it does need to be filled, you know, whether it's with girlfriends or being on stage in front of your fans. Um, you know, I, that's something that we can't really understand, but I think it is an aspect of, of who Elvis was. And he was a very shy child. He was shy. And again, even in the 70s, you know, every female that he spent time with in the 70s pretty much says the same thing. Like, you know, yes, we were together, but we would sit and read the Bible and talk about passages and talk about how they inspired us in different ways. So he was always looking for someone to connect with. And he wasn't, he was never a person who had like random one night stands. It would be, you know, he'd fly girlfriends in for various weekends and things like that, people he knew. So he did want to know them. And uh, everybody was always real clear, you know, it's, was he a womanizer? Yes, but I think everybody was clear about the situation, too. He was always very honest about that, I think. Um, and, yeah, it, it had to be very difficult to be Priscilla, and it had to be very difficult to be married to him because of that. And, yeah, and then was it Larry Geller that he met that was very much into New Age stuff? Um, was it Larry mm -hmm. Geller? Am I right? Yeah. So yeah. he met yes, Larry Geller was – yeah. So he was um, – he introduced him to all kinds of New Age spirituality, things like that, um, Eastern religion and stuff like that. And, and he, Elvis just dived into that. But that was not – that was seen as a problem by his manager, right? Yeah, and Elvis was a big reader. So, you know, before it was the New Age religion and studying different philosophies, it was history and different things like that. You know, he was always reading. He read a ton about health. When, you know, his colon problem got really bad, he asked his doctor for a book on the colon so he could understand what was going on with it. Uh, you know, he really did love to read. And, yeah, when he starts to, you know, kind of dive into all the religious stuff, some see that as a problem. Um, 
I think he was curious and he was just filling some of that, you know, curiosity. And uh, he, he remained, you know, he always went back to the Bible though and always spent time with that with, you know, friends and women, like I said, discussing it, but he did have a, I think he had a, a quest for knowledge, a thirst for knowledge. And in some ways, you know, he's Elvis Presley and he can go anywhere and do anything, but in other ways he can't because he's so famous that maybe he's kind of just trapped reading about it and not actually experiencing some of those things. Hmm. Interesting. Um, He loved gospel music. That's really what inspired him from, from childhood, right? Absolutely. Gospel and ballads, you know, becoming a rock, the king of rock and roll, I think kind of happened a little bit by accident. He certainly had that driving rhythm and felt that music in a different way, but it did all stem from, from the initial gospel music that he would have heard in the Assembly of God Church. And the only Grammys he ever won were for his gospel albums. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was also the first person in his family to ever graduate school, wasn't he? And that yes, education for sure. is very you know, important to his, his parents. Again, all his parents wanted, you know, was for him to graduate from high school. And we talk about the women getting married young. Uh, not everybody graduated from high school. You know, you had to drop out. You had to work. You had to help support the family. You had to do those things in the in the rural south. And, and when you lived in poverty as well, you had to start contributing. Elvis gets a job in high school. He's working midnights. And he wants to contribute to the family. Uh, but he's falling asleep in class. So then Gladys puts an end to that. Um, so, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> sorry, what was I the original question? I was talking about education. Education, yes. Yeah, so, so he's falling asleep in class, and then he has to quit his job to make sure that he graduates. But in the summer, he's you know trying to make money and all of that uh, to contribute back to the family. And uh, they wanted him to graduate, and he did. But both of his parents, you know, they say they had a third or maybe fifth grade at most education, mm. both of his parents. So, yeah. Wow, wow. And um, what was his experience in the Army? Um, you know, I saw – you wrote in there quickly that, you know, he, that somebody said that he was suffering from shell shock, which now we call PTSD. Um, but you didn't elaborate a whole lot on that. So what was that about? Um, I don't, from being in the army, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Okay. I'm not sure All what right. you're talking about with that, but he was depressed with, uh, when he first entered the army, you know, his mother, well, so he goes to Texas for basic training, and then before he's transferred to Germany, his mother passes. So, you know, his mother passes, and then he has to get on the ship and take the voyage and go live in Germany, you know, be stationed in Germany for 18 months. And uh, that was traumatic for him, I think, in many ways, to have to leave Graceland. But at the same time, I think it was probably very healing to kind of get some space from the home that, you know, he had shared with his mother and um, and just be as normal of a person as he would be again for quite some time um, to kind of have that break from being Elvis Presley was probably good in the wake of his mother dying, but that was very traumatic for him. And I think he dealt with some serious depression and there, there were some notes about that in the military um, medical files. So that might be what you're referring to. Maybe that's what it was. Hmm. Um, And also I want to ask you, No, I lost my train of thought. We've talked about so many things. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, uh, you know oh, one I more know thing I, I'd, I'd offer. Yeah, go, ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. What I wanted to ask you was what was the deal with the colonel? Because, you know, he was he was a fraud, actually. He wasn't who he said he was. He was here illegally. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so how did he get this big? How did he was how was he able to accomplish this? with Elvis. It, it's it's a perfect storm, you know, it really is a perfect storm that someone with such a story as the colonel um, would become the manager of the most famous man to ever live. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating story. I think it's an aspect of Elvis's story that will always have more questions than answers. Um, I can tell you, you know, the movie was out recently and it's not, I don't think it accurately depicts that relationship at all. And uh, the movie makes it seem like Elvis knew that the colonel was here illegally. Elvis never knew that. That was never common knowledge until, you know, the early 80s. Um, no one knew that the colonel was here illegally until after he passed. 
Um, but again, I, I just think it was uh, an agreement they had early on. I will do, you know, I do the performing, you, you are in charge of the money. And, and it worked for a long time until it didn't work, you know. Eventually Elvis wanted more control over the creative side of things. And when Elvis does take that control and when he does, you know, record songs that they might not have the rights to, which the Colonel would insist on to make the most profit, um, those are some of his biggest hits. So it's really important that Elvis kind of go against the colonel at, at those times. Um, but the colonel was all, also revolutionary throughout his career in many ways. So that's why I feel like it's just not a clear cut. You can't say it's all good or all bad. It's both mm-hmm. uh, without right. question because he merchandises Elvis in a way that had never been done before with Elvis being on lipstick and hats and purses and wallets. And, you know, the young girls who were so gaga over Elvis at that time, they loved all of that merchandise. And it was a big part of Elvis becoming so popular and so iconic and again with the um uh the vegas engagements and you know all of that that was very unusual so for you know elvis to make the kind of money he did and to have um that presence in las vegas those were all things that really hadn't been done before to the level that elvis did them and the colonel was part of that that's amazing and pros and cons yeah it really is amazing that he was able to do that but but you said that, you know, they were 50-50 with the money, but yet all the expenses came out of Elvis's half, right? Yeah, after a certain point, like every part of the business is set up differently. So the recording is one thing, the movies is one thing, the current, the concerts are another, the merchandising is another. And not all of that was 50-50. You know, it was, it, the book talks about how that was split at different times. But towards the end, it was getting more and more 50-50, you know, and there, there was different speculation for why that was. You know, some people say that the colonel knew that Elvis wasn't going to be making money much longer and it was his only client, you know, and things like that. Um, again, I think there was some manipulation going on there, especially towards the end. I think that they should have parted ways at some point, And I'm not, you know, I'm again, that's a whole nother, you could debate for hours about what that point should have been. Um, and then there's other people who say that, well, there wouldn't have been an Elvis Presley without the Colonel. And I completely disagree with that because it's not as if the Colonel stumbled upon Elvis and he wasn't famous yet. You know, Elvis was already making big waves in the South. And yes, the Colonel helped him get on TV in New York and that helps Elvis go coast to coast and above the Mason Dixon line. But I think Elvis was so already, you know, gaining such a following in the South by that point that anyone with connections in New York could have done that. So I completely disagree, you know, with the people who say no Colonel, no Elvis. I think someone else, you know, possibly probably more qualified may have found Elvis and, um, taken him where he needed to go. But I think overall it's a mistake for Elvis to stay with one manager all of that time. But again, Elvis believed in loyalty and trust. And it was, you know, he liked consistent, reliable things. So I think it would have been very difficult for Elvis and his personality to change horses midstream as well, so to speak. Right, exactly. And that makes sense. I mean, the way that you um, portray his character, which I'm I'm sure yeah. it's very accurate because you have how many pages of references in the back? Like, yeah. Well, he yeah. likes that consistency. You know, that's why right. he has his family around him. That's why he has these guys around him. You know, he likes the consistency of being reminded who Elvis Presley, the regular guy, is. So that's right. why he's not always real comfortable in California. He goes to California. He likes being there, but he doesn't go to the Hollywood parties. He has his Memphis guys there to hang out with. And mm-hmm. he likes consistency. And I think we see that in his friends and his family and the way he lives and in his management. Hmm. Amazing. Um, so he, you said he died in the bathroom. What was the progression mm-hmm. in the last maybe week of his life? What was going on? Well, he was getting ready to go on tour again. He was at Graceland, um, you know, longer than he had been really since he got the airplane because the airplane, the least Marie allowed him to travel a little more easily. So, you know, instead of just staying at Graceland, he'd maybe go out to Palm Springs or, you know, Denver or wherever once, um, he was able to do that a little bit more easily with the airplane. Um, but that break between the last tours, he stayed at Graceland. And I don't think he was feeling good at all. I think he felt the difference. He didn't talk about it, but he stayed in his room more than usual. And uh, he, there are some phone calls that he had with uh, one of his background singers and then with one of the Memphis Mafia guys where he just said, you know, I don't feel good. I just don't feel good. And they both said, well, cancel cancel this upcoming tour because they saw his health go up and down and up and down, you know, for years. And they said, cancel this upcoming tour. Take a break. You need a break. And he said, you know, I can't. Too many people rely on me. 
and there were two different phone calls made with that same tone in between, you know, his, from his last tour to when he was, until he passed, when he was, because he was supposed to go on to leave to go on tour the night he died, the day, you know, the day he died and go on another, you know, two week or however many city tour. Um, and of course that didn't happen. But again, when he went to bed that day, he said, you know, we're going to, this is going to be the best tour ever. And he felt ready. Uh, we also know that he died in the bathroom and I believe that the cardiac arrhythmia was caused by something known as the Valsalva maneuver, which means you're straining to go to the bathroom or, you know, straining during childbirth, any of those things that can change blood pressure and whatnot quickly. Um, because we know before he went on tour, he would try so hard to empty his colon so he didn't look so bloated and fat on stage. You know, he was always concerned about his appearance on stage. So, um, and that comes from his doctor. So we know he was probably in the bathroom, partly for that reason. And then that created that cardiac arrhythmia, and he died. And you say that um, when the enlarged heart, let's see, liver wasn't in terrific shape but was not cause of death. When the enlarged heart was removed from Elvis's chest and held up for others in the room to view, instead of looking like a red muscle, this heart looked like brown flab. A normal heart weighs 375 grams. Elvis's heart weighed 520 grams. Wow. Yes. And again, you know, tick- the medic ticking time bomb. He was just a ticking, he was a ticking time bomb. Absolutely. And we know, obviously, the medication was going to be, you know, the, the type of medication he took was hard on his heart as well. But when we look at his mother dying, heart and liver issue, 46, and three of his uncles, her brothers, again, exact same type of degenerative health and death of heart attack, you know, lung and liver issues. And Elvis has signs of all of that. So I, you know, we don't know what that genetic heart issue was. And just a genetic liver issue could create that heart situation too. But um, I think there was a serious defective heart issue going on there with, with all in that family. And we see it play out through the tree. We don't know what that was, but, but we know that was a heart, a heart related death. And then we know that his heart you know, was in that shape at the autopsy. It amazes me. I keep thinking back to myself, like when I don't feel a little bit, a little bit not good, when I'm a little off, Yeah. <laughs> then I don't want to do anything, well, you know, and it's amazing to me. Right. Everything that he dealt with, and, you know, we haven't talked about his adrenal glands, but he burnt out his adrenal glands, you know, taking cortisol and different medications that he would take to try to get for his colon problem and other issues. And, oh. uh, Without adrenal glands, you can't do anything, you know, and, and they did supplement and try to fix that and get them working again. I'm not sure they knew just how important the adrenal glands were back then. You know, there is a limit, too, to 1975 medical knowledge when it comes to immune system and things like that, too. Um, but he burnt out his adrenal glands, so that would have been a lifelong, you know, once you do that, you have to really, it's very easy to burn them out again um, mm-hmm. and to get them functioning properly. So just that in itself, energy-wise, would have made it very difficult to be Elvis Presley. And then along with these other issues, you know, the heart issue and the lung issue and his digestive problems and the insomnia, which is nervous system. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, about the hypogabaglobinemia with the immune system and then the severe arthritis pain that would have come from all of that inflammation because all of those disorders create a lot of inflammation. And, and we know now that things like fibromyalgia and stuff like that can create just chronic pain, you know, throughout your body. And I think um, the arthritis at the level that he would have suffered from it must have been hard to live with too. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, there's a quote at the end where um, Muhammad Ali says, I don't admire nobody, but Elvis Presley was the sweetest, most humble and nicest man you'd want to know. And he, he, had a lot of friends, um, high-profile friends, famous friends, right? He did. He was. He had good relationships, I think, with a lot of people like Muhammad Ali. He didn't necessarily hang out with a lot of famous people, like I mentioned earlier. You know, he liked his Memphis buddies and his family and friends that were comfortable to him. Uh, but he had a lot of uh, acquaintances and, you know, friends, just not super close friends that were famous. Uh, but no matter what, there was so much respect there. You know, people always say that if, if you talk to anyone, you won't meet anybody who knew Elvis or who met Elvis or who talked with Elvis who had a bad thing to say about him. 
Um, you know, he had met Frank Sinatra on several occasions, and Frank Sinatra had nothing but good things to say about Elvis. In the beginning, he didn't like him. You know, he thought that rock and roll was going to ruin the world, and of course, it hurt big band music. So you can understand why Frank felt that way. Uh, but came on, uh, you know, came to have a real appreciation for Elvis and genuinely liked him. And it, it's not like they hung out together, but they would meet in Vegas once in a while and things like that. And uh, people just they really enjoyed. They appreciated. Uh, I think how humble, how respectful, how kind Elvis was, and how he would take the time, you know, for everyone. And Sammy Davis Jr. is another one who just goes on about that. What a fascinating story. I, I, I mean, I can hear how excited you get when you talk about this. And there's so mm-hmm. much in this book. It's an incredible book. You did such an amazing job writing it. Um, I mean, there's so much research that went into this. Um, was was all of this easy to find, all of this research that, you know, going back into these generations, previous generations? Um, I can't say it was easy, but there were times when it was just unbelievable how the dots connected or how people helped me. You know, I ended up interviewing uh, over 15 people who knew Elvis and making connections with people who contribute to in the Elvis world and have access to documents and things like that. And all those people were so helpful. And, you know, even like reaching out to, I wanted to talk to Gladys's cardiologist, but he's already passed. So I reached out to his daughter and uh, she still had access to some medical records from her dad. And, and she had gone on house calls with her dad, you know, first to the Audubon house and then to Graceland. So she had firsthand you know, experience too, when no one had ever really talked to her before. So there were just a number of things like that, you know, talking to people who had access to the autopsy and people who have access to medical records. Um, I, I stumbled upon some things and some people that no one had talked to before, and that was really helpful. But then other people were just, again, so giving and generous and, uh, um, you know, providing some of that information that people just hadn't looked at before or talked about or pieced together in this way. Because it is a lot, and the book does cover a lot. And I know it's hard for us to kind of talk about these ailments in such a small way uh, because in the book it gives you more of an idea of how they're all connected, you know, to to each other and then to certain parts of Elvis's life where you can see them play out more than others and, and things like that. So um, it, it was pretty incredible from being a fan just to see how it came together and then how it brought a, a new level of understanding and appreciation. Yeah. And his reputation was so exploited. Um, and it's, you know, this, I know this comes from your heart, but I'm sure that he is absolutely smiling down on you because you told Aww. the truth, you know, he told the truth. I appreciate that. And, you know, he was a strong American male in the 1970s. And he wouldn't, he kept all this secret. And, you know, when you talk about health, as you often do, people are very open about it now. You have a podcast talking about it. But back then, especially in the 50s and throughout the, in to the 70s, people didn't talk about their health. You never would have talked about constipation. You wouldn't have had commercials for yogurt on TV like you do now. Um, it was kept, kept very private. And or he easy. didn't want to appear weak. He, he didn't want to appear weak. He wanted to be a strong American male that he was expected to be and you know all this got hidden because of that well well it's amazing and i'm really happy to to have known him the way that you have um portrayed him i you know it's really really wonderful i you know i'm not a big elvis fan i never really was but i love i love reading um the truth behind the man i i just think that that's fantastic because it is so different than the way people perceive him And I appreciate you, you know, giving me the opportunity to have this conversation because, you know, I wrote the book for Elvis fans. Obviously, they're very enthusiastic to always read more, and that's important, too. And but I also wanted the book to reach beyond that. And it has, you know, into pop culture and just music enthusiasts. And and I want Elvis to be seen as a historical figure. So I think that conversation can happen anywhere. But to have this conversation, you know, in a health setting and reach people who it might not normally reach is still so important because everyone knows who Elvis Presley is. Like everybody knows whether you're a fan or not. So to be able to correct some of that rhetoric in a in a in a you know unusual setting like this one, I just I really appreciate that right. opportunity. You have really humanized the man. Um, so Sally, thank you. I know your book is probably doing well already, and I wish you great success with it. And um, I'm honored that you took the time to come on and allow me to interview you about it. Well, thank you. It has it's sold out twice already, so we're into the third printing, and it's just getting back in stock now, but it's on my website at elvisauthor.com, and it'll be back up on Amazon probably by the end of the week, too. So. Oh, perfect. Okay, Sally. Well, 
thank you so much again, and uh, and have a wonderful day. This was a really amazing interview. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about um, about the show that you listened to today, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.